if you will turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. The book of Exodus, chapter 20. And we're reminded, of course, uh, in this chapter, that God led his redeemed people from grace to law. From grace to law. And God's laws are given to us here in the Ten Commandments, which we're going to remind ourselves about tonight. The commandments are for all men and women at all times, but especially they are there to be obeyed with delight and as a duty by those who are saved. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we delight to do these laws and this his will. So let's listen to the words from chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labour and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, 
Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let God not speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless to us this reading of his word, and to his name be praise and glory. Amen. Welcome. Well, it is good to be with you this evening, brethren. There's nothing I can do now about the content, but can you all hear me? There was a famous um, comment made by Michael Flanders many years ago. I'm a uh, fan of Michael Flanders and uh, Donald Swan, and uh, they began one of their shows by pointing out that they could do something about the volume, but they couldn't do anything about uh, the content at all, because you've got me. I'm sorry about that. We shall begin with two quotations. The first, written in 2004, runs thus. I've had enough experience over the years, on both sides of the sheets, to conclude that almost anyone, man or woman, is rarely more than a glance and a well-chosen compliment away from adultery. The second, originally published in 1692, some 312 years before the quotation just cited, reads thus, God is a pure Holy Spirit and has an infinite antipathy against all uncleanness. The contexts of these quotations are very different. Jonathan Gornow is the author of the first and appears in a short article on the subject of female adultery. During the month of 2004, September 2004, the Times newspaper published a number of articles on that subject. In his brief contribution, Mr. Gornow is somewhat anxious to put the record straight. He asserts that it's too simplistic to explain that if a woman strays sexually, she does so against her will and as a victim of another's neglect or bad behaviour. Rather, he asserts, the reality which I thought all grown-ups had recognised by now is that women hunger for sex just as much as men do and that sometimes the excitement of the forbidden proves irresistible. The second of our quotations was penned by the eminent and popular Puritan preacher Thomas Watson. It is in fact the opening sentence of the helpful and judicious comments he made on the seventh of the Ten Commandments. His words represent but a fraction of his classic exposition of the Shorter Catechism drawn up by the Westminster Assembly and were published some six years after his death in the work that was originally known as A Body 
of practical divinity. However, it's not just the different contexts that we want to note. These quotations serve another purpose. They highlight a tension with which we all live to a greater or lesser degree. On the one hand, there is within all human beings a longing for intimacy, even sexual intimacy, with another. On the other hand, no matter how much some may wish it was otherwise, there is an awareness within us all that we are not free to have all that we desire. For some, a constraining influence is the knowledge that the person for whom we long is in a committed relationship with another. For others, and I assume this includes all Christians, a determinative constraint will be the knowledge that God has spoken and that he has revealed his will for mankind whom he created in and as his image within the sphere of the created order. Moreover, an integral facet of this constraint is the awareness that God, who has spoken, is at one and the same time the God to whom we are accountable for all that we do, say and think. We are not free agents, the product of mere random chance. Rather, as moral beings, we are dependent upon God for our existence and accountable to him for our actions, thoughts and words. This accountability includes, of course, giving an account to him for our sexual behaviour. Our task then is to explore but one aspect of our maker's will for us. More specifically, it is to confine ourselves to the matter of biblical sexual ethics. And in particular, it is to explain the import of the seventh word given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. We shall endeavour to discuss three issues. First, we shall have a look at what God would have us do. Secondly, we shall endeavour to see what violations of the seventh command entail. And then thirdly, we shall endeavour to see what Christians can do by way of example both to believers and unbelievers. So firstly, let's have a look at what it is that God would have people do. The seventh word of the ten given to Moses consists in Hebrew of but two words. The first is the adverb lo, meaning not. It qualifies the verb that immediately follows. The verb is na'af, which literally means commit adultery. The form in which the verb is given is the second person singular masculine of the cow imperfect. In other words, the command is addressed to us as individuals, thou, you, and as the Hebrew imperfect describes incomplete and even future action, it refers to behaviour that has not been, but which could be done. The adverb then is very significant. It indicates that as individuals we are to do the very opposite of what was taught in the Wicked Bible of 1631. The Wicked Bible was an edition of the authorised or King James translation that omitted the vital word adverb not from the biblical text of Exodus 20 
and verse 14. Archbishop Lord at the time was not pleased and showed his disapproval by imposing upon the printers a substantial fine in the sum of £300. More to the point, though, is the fact that the specific command, you shall not, or for those who prefer to see unequivocally expressed, the fact that the verb is given in the second person singular, the command, thou shalt not commit adultery, informs us that there is a specific type of behaviour of which God disapproves. There are three aspects of the behaviour condemned which we do well to note. First, and very obviously, this command condemns sexual intimacy with someone other than one's spouse. The type of intimacy envisaged is voluntary as opposed to forced. Enforced sexual relations constitute rape and not adultery. Moreover, in the strict sense, adultery is sexual intercourse by a married person with a person to whom he or she is not married. It is important that we keep in mind these two ideas, for there are some who argue that not all extramarital relationships are wrong. For example, there are those who assert that if a married couple mutually agree that either one may, with the other's knowledge and approval, enter into a sexual relationship with another person, then that would not necessarily be adultery. Moreover, some also argue that if this was to happen with the express intention of improving one's sex life with one's spouse, then that would indeed be justifiable. But such a specious argument is nothing less than special pleading and muddled thinking. It vitiates the two important principles which we have seen are implicit in the command itself. Let it then be clearly stated that when God declared on Mount Sinai, thou shalt not commit adultery, he was reminding his people, and through them humanity, that the creation ordinance that an individual human being is not to voluntary or otherwise engage in sexual relations with anyone other than his or, own, is her, his or her own spouse is a divine decree that is to be honoured by all Perhaps at this point it would be of use to remind ourselves of the essential character of Christian morality. Dr. J.I. Packer has summarised it well. He articulates three key principles. One, all the norms of morality are revealed and rational. Two, they are creational and covenantal. And three, they are regulational and relational. What can be said of moral norms in general terms can be said of the seventh commandment in specific terms. The commandment, in that it was given, spoken and written by God, is revelational in character. Moreover, it is given for our good and every civilization has endorsed the reasonableness and rational character of this command across both generations and cultures. The commandment coheres with, underscores and summarises a fundamentally important principle implicit in the teaching of Genesis chapter 2. In so doing, it reminds us that this command is an integral part of the created order. It is a creation ordinance. Or to use the words of Alistair Begg, this law did not begin with the thundering of Sinai, it came to Adam in the garden. 
Furthermore, the historic circumstances of the Sinai happenings point unequivocally to the fact that the law was given to God's chosen covenant people. John Calvin, in his exposition of the reason why the law was added about 400 years after the death of Abraham, states that the third and principal use which pertains more closely to the proper purpose of the law finds its place among believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already lives and reigns. Here is the best instrument for them to learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and to confirm them in the understanding of it. And the commandment, in that it is a word of command, is regulational. In it we discover both what we are to do, the prohibitory side of the command, and what, sorry, the, what we are not to do, the prohibitory side of the command, and what we are to do, the aspirational aspect of the command. Moreover, both aspects are relational in that they concern our relationship with God and with other members of the human race. However, it's to the aspirational exhortatory aspect of the precept that we must now turn. So secondly, under this, our first head, we want to notice that the seventh commandment enjoins upon mankind the duty to honour marriage. It has become fashionable in some circles to describe marriage as a social construct. Those sociologists and others who espouse that view do not see marriage as a divine institution, but as a man-made social convenience. They do not believe that it is an essential element of the created order. Rather, they view it as an accident of history. As a result, it matters little to them how people organise their lives. As far as they are concerned, we're free to marry or cohabit. We're free to indulge in homosexual or heterosexual or even bisexual practices. And we're frequent to experiment both before and within and outside of any relationship we happen to choose. That may be what some think. But such thinking ignores the fundamental responsibility to honour marriage. This duty is laid upon all mankind without exception. The command, you shall not commit adultery, means that each individual is under an obligation not to break wedlock. In saying that, we are at the same time asserting that we are to honour marriage. It comes, therefore, as no surprise to the Christian to see that the author of Hebrews argues that marriage is to be held in honour and that the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled. The consistent testimony of the 16th century reformers and their successors was that the seventh commandment lays upon all people a moral, moral obligation to value and respect marriage. The first and second prayer books of Edward VI and the 1662 Book of Common Prayer each describe marriage as an honourable estate instituted by God. Furthermore, the introduction to the solemnisation of matrimony in each document contains an exhortation to recognise that marriage is not to be, quote, taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. The Shorter Catechism of 1648 states, in the answer to question 71, that the Seventh Commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbour's chastity in heart, 
speech and behavior. In other words, sexual intimacy with another is to be reserved for heterosexual monogamous marriage, which, as Alistair Begg reminds us, the Bible says, is a loving, lasting, binding, solemn, exclusive covenant of relationship in which a man and a woman begin to think, act and feel as one. Marriage, according to the Book of Common Prayer, was ordained first for the mutual society help and comfort of husband and wife. Secondly, for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication. And thirdly, for the procreation of children who are to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. Each purpose has some bearing on sexual intimacy. Obviously, the third, the procreation of children, relates to one of the functions of coitus. So too does the first. The mutual support and comfort a husband and wife are to have one for another. However, it's the second purpose for which marriage was ordained by God, namely as a remedy against sin that most obviously relates to the seventh commandment. Our spiritual forefathers evidently believed and taught that the proper context for sexual intimacy is heterosexual monogamous marriage. If statistics are in to go by, then it seems that too few share that conviction today. In 1973, according to the Office of Population Censuses and Surveys, the number of couples who admitted cohabiting before marriage was 10%. By 1987, 15 years or so later, it was over half, with 58% of men and 53% of women admitting to having lived with their partners beforehand. The most recent statistics for England and Wales show that Among non-married women aged under 60, the proportion cohabiting more than doubled from 13% in 1986 to 28% in 2001, 2002. For men, it also more than doubled over the same period, from 12% to 25%. In 2001, 2002, the prevalence of cohabitation was highest for women aged 25 to 29, for men it was highest for those aged 30 to 34. Put more starkly, these statistics indicate that the average of 900,000 men and women under 60 cohabiting in 1986 and 1987 must have risen quite sharply in recent years. What's the situation on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean? The Janus Report on Sexual Behaviour, published in 1993, estimated that more than one-third of men and one-quarter of women admit having at least one extramarital experience. However, a survey conducted by the National Opinion Research Centre based at the University of Chicago found that 25% of men and 17% of women have been unfaithful to their partner. Kirby Anderson reports that for the United States even when these lower ratios are applied to the current adult population, that means that some 19 million husbands and 12 million wives have had an affair. Anderson further states that there is growing evidence that adultery is also a problem in Christian circles. An article in the 1997 issue of Newsweek magazine noted that various surveys suggest that as many as 30% of male Protestant ministers have had sexual relationships with women other than their wives. The Journal of Pastoral Care in 1993 reported a survey of Southern Baptist pastors 
in which 14% acknowledged they had engaged in sexual behaviour inappropriate for a minister. It also reported that 70% had counselled at least one woman who had had intercourse with another minister. A 1988 survey of nearly 1,000 Protestant clergy by Leadership magazine found that 12% admitted to sexual intercourse outside of marriage and that 23% had done something sexually inappropriate with someone other than their spouse. The researchers also interviewed nearly 1,000 subscribers to Christianity Today who were not pastors. They found the numbers were nearly double. 45% indicated having done something sexually inappropriate and 23% having had sexual, extramarital sexual intercourse. Thirdly, under this our first head, and this point follows on naturally from what has just been said about honouring marriage, the seventh word of instruction given at Sinai teaches us to be chaste and pure. There has been much debate over the years about the difference between adultery and fornication. Yes, it is true that you will find at least two different words in both Hebrew and Greek that can respectively be translated adultery and fornication. In Hebrew, as we've seen, the word na'af means to commit adultery. But there is another word, the word zanah, which means to commit fornication. In Greek, the word moikuo is usually translated to commit adultery and the verb pornuo to commit fornication. Lexicologists and philologists would no doubt be able to tell us much about the nuances of these verbs. But there are two points we want to note. First, the terms adultery and fornication both refer to voluntary sexual intercourse. Usually the former refers to intercourse, as we've seen, with someone other than one's spouse, whilst the latter is more properly and especially used to describe sexual intercourse between unmarried persons. Secondly, both terms are used in scripture to describe, at least from the divine perspective, illicit sexual relations. Moreover, it does appear that the terms can be used, how shall we put it, somewhat interchangeably. Thus, for example, you find that both terms are used in the Old Testament to describe Israel's unfaithfulness. This can be illustrated from Ezekiel chapter 16, where in verse 16 of that chapter, Israel is said to have committed fornication, played the whore in the English Standard Translation, and in verse 32, to have behaved like an adulteress, an adulterous wife in the English Standard Translation. The matter on which we need to be clear is that the Seventh Commandment condemns and outlaws both types of behaviour. The instruction, you shall not commit adultery, is an all-embracing term. It refers to all forms of sexual impurity. That is why, in response to question 139 in the larger catechism of 1648, We read, the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, apart from the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts. But it doesn't stop there. Remembering that the sins condemned by this commandment are not just physical in character, we're informed that the following are also forbidden. All unclean imaginations thoughts, purposes and affections, all corrupt and filthy communications or listening to them, wanton looks, impudent or frivolous behaviour, 
immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping brothels and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. Now this extensive list prompts us to recall another very important strand of biblical teaching on this topic, namely that given by the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Although it is often said that in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord goes beyond the teaching of the Decalogue and gives a new and deeper meaning to the command, it should be noted that it is misleading to assert that the commandments do not address inward dispositions and the motives that prompt us to action. They do. Consider, for example, the tenth commandment. In saying you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, it expressly forbids the sinful desire which leads to adultery. Hence, as the answer to question 138 of the latter catechism states, the duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words and behaviour, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. Temperance, keeping chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those who have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labour in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations to it. In putting things thus, the Puritans of the 16th century endorsed the sentiment and teaching of John Bradford, 16th century reformer and one-time chaplain to King Edward VI, who asserted that as God forbids all unclean deeds, words, looks and thoughts, so he commands us to love and exercise all purity, chastity, cleanness, sobriety, temperancy, etc. Thus far we have considered what God requires of us. We have seen that the seventh commandment directs our attention to three fundamentally important principles. It informs us that sexual intimacy with another belongs to heterosexual monogamous marriage alone. It informs us that marriage is to be held in high esteem by all. And it informs us that every human being is under a divine obligation to be an exemplar of chastity and purity. Later we will consider how we are to fulfil our duty, but before we do that we need to note with care how serious a matter disobedience to this commandment actually is. So secondly, what violations of the second, seventh commandment entail? At this point, we want to remind ourselves that we live in a generation that glories in the privatisation of morality. Or to use the words of Alistair Begg, the prevailing culture shouts from the rooftops that adultery, adultery is generally regarded as a private activity between consenting adults with little public consequence. Though that is how the world sees things, 
it is no exaggeration to say that the world's estimation of sexual sin in general and of adultery in particular is woefully mistaken. What all people need to appreciate is that Thomas Watson was right when he said that God is a pure Holy Spirit who has infinite antipathy against all uncleanness. To show that this is indeed the case, we shall make three observations. First, we want to see in fairly general terms how the sin of adultery is described in the Bible. What do we find? That the words abomination, heinous, outrageous, sin and uncleanness are all utilised to impress upon us the seriousness of sexual infidelity. The word translated abomination, toba, is used some 114 times in the Old Testament. It is invariably used to describe morally reprehensible acts. In Ezekiel 22 and verse 11, it is used to describe sexual infidelity with a neighbour's wife. It's an abomination in the eyes of God. The word translated heinous, zimar, is used some 26 times in the Hebrew Scriptures and generally describes that which is wicked or lewd. In Job 31 and 11, Job acknowledged that it is nothing less than heinous crime for a married man to be enticed toward another woman and to lie in wait for her at his neighbour's door. The word nibala is translated as villainy in the authorised or King James translation and as outrageous in the English Standard translation. It only occurs some 13 times in the Old Testament and its main meaning is folly. In Jeremiah 29:23, Ahab and Zedekiah are condemned by God for acting outrageously. What did they do? They showed a lack of moral integrity and perpetrated villainy by committing adultery with their neighbours' wives. It is generally accepted that the woman who wet the feet of the Lord Jesus with her tears, who wiped them with the hair of her head, who kissed them, and who anointed them with ointment from an alabaster flask, was guilty of sexual misdemeanour. She's described by Luke as a sinner. The word translated sinner, hamartalos, is used 47 times in the New Testament, most frequently 43 times as a noun. The idea conveyed by the term is that of erring by missing or not hitting the mark. Rengstorff states that in the New Testament the word has a derogatory nuance and is used not just to describe the woman in Simon's house, but also those living in conscious opposition to God's will and those who are to be distinguished from respectable people. The word tumar occurs 35 times in the Old Testament and is used to describe acts that are deemed filthy or unclean. It is used in Numbers 5, where a test for establishing marital unfaithfulness by a woman is described. In verse 19, adultery is defined as turning aside to uncleanness. Earlier in the same chapter, the same act is termed a breaking of faith with one's husband and as a defiling of oneself. There are many more Bible passages we could consider, but sufficient has been said to justify the following assessment of it made by the Puritan John Flavel. He described adultery as a sin that the God of heaven hath often prohibited and severely condemned in the world, and that God's denunciation of it abundantly declares his abhorrence of it. 
Secondly, under this, our second head, we want to see in more detail why the sin of adultery is condemned so forthrightly in the Bible. To help us do that, we want to highlight five characteristics of this sin. One, the appropriateness of the term heinous to describe this sin is seen when it is recognised that an act of adultery is an act of disobedience. You're going to get five words beginning with D. The first is disobedience. Disobedience represents a putting of self before God. It is an act of defiance. In so acting, a person guilty of this sin, as Proverbs 6 and verse 32 states, reveals a lack of sense or understanding. Such disobedience is frequently used, especially in the Old Testament, as a metaphor to describe idolatry. There is a close link between wrong belief and wrong behaviour. Jim Packer makes that point when he asserts that Christian duty is determined by Christian doctrine. Orthopraxy, as, as we call it, follows from and is controlled and shaped by orthodoxy. John Flavel establishes the same point when he states that spiritual and corporeal adultery oftentimes are found in the same persons. They that give themselves up to the one are by the righteous hand of God given up to the other, as it is too manifestly and frequently exemplified in the world. Two, something of the heinous nature of this sin is seen when it is recognised that it entails deliberation. That's our second word, beginning with D. We noted earlier that adultery is a voluntary act. It is something in which a person chooses to engage now we're noting that the adulterer pursues his fleeting pleasure in defiance of the precepts and warnings of Scripture, the Christian community, the consensus of humanity and the inner voice of conscience. It has become commonplace today when things go wrong to lay the blame on someone or something else. Adulterers may blame their partner or their circumstances in an attempt to downgrade the seriousness of what they've done. The excuses may be plentiful but they can never erase the fact that voluntary sexual intimacy with another is an act of the will and not just the passions. The adulterer deliberately chooses to disobey the revealed will of God. Interestingly, Hosea, enlightening a spiritual adulterer to an heated oven, illustrates the deliberateness with which the adulterer sins. Commenting on Hosea chapter 7 and verse 4, Calvin says, he afterwards compares them to a furnace or an oven. The prophet by this similitude shows more clearly that the people were not corrupted by some outward impulse, but by their own inclination and propensity of mind. Yea, by a mad and furious desire of acting wickedly, their defection had not only been voluntary, so that the blame was in themselves, but they had also ardently seized on the occasion of sinning and had been heated as in a hot oven. But this fire had not been suddenly lighted up, but had been for a long time gathering strengths. Three, the heinous character of this sin is seen when it is recognised that it is an act of dishonesty. Disobedience, deliberation, dishonesty. For the Christian especially, it entails being untrue to God, who is faithful 
and always true to his chosen covenant people. And for all people it entails being untrue to one's spouse. It involves, does it not, a breach of marriage vows. And it also represents nothing less than the theft of a neighbour's wife. Frank Pittman, in his book Private Lies, Infidelity and the Betrayal of Intimacy, says, The infidelity is not in the sex necessarily, but in the secrecy. It isn't whom you lie with, it's whom you lie to. Four, dishonour. The fourth word we want to use to describe the heinous nature of this sin is dishonour. The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians of Corinth, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then a little later he asks, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The reason he speaks thus is because he wants to stress that all sexual immorality involves a dishonouring of the body. The point is made especially in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul says that every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral persons sin against his own body. Hence John Flavel says of sexual immorality it is a sin that defiles and destroys the body. In most other sins the body is the instrument. Here it is the object against which the sin is committed. That body of thine, which should be the temple of the Holy Ghost, is turned into a sty of filthiness, yea, and it not only defiles, but destroys it. And so we come to another feature of this heinous sin. Five, adultery is destructive. And it's destructive in a number of ways. The emotions, relationships, and even the body can be and frequently are adversely affected. Hosea in the fourth chapter of the book that bears his name says the cherishing of whoredom takes away understanding. Solomon Ecclesiastes 7 speaks of the snares, nets and fetters of the adulteress being more bitter than death. And David in Psalm 51 expresses so vividly the inner turmoil he faced after his adultery with Bathsheba. It is well known that sexual immorality can result in the contracting of a sexually transmitted disease. Nonetheless, the advice of Solomon that the one who commits adultery destroys himself is frequently ignored. So too is the warning that the house of an adulteress sinks down to death and that none who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. John Flavel reminds us that this sin will quickly exhaust the fullest estate and that the longer a man lives in it, the less power he hath to leave it. It is not only a damning, but an infatuating sin. Moreover, Flavel also warns that by this sin thou dost not only damn thine own soul, but drawest another to hell with thee. We said there were three observations we want to make under this, our second heading. The third matter we need to consider as we discuss violations of the seventh commandment is the consequences of them. Thirdly, then, we want to see the consequences of this sin. It's recognised that some of the consequences of this sin have been touched upon in our fivefold analysis of the sin itself. But at this point, we want to build upon what has already been said 
and in particular we want to highlight three important spiritual truths. One, adultery is displeasing to God. That must be the case because it is a sin, and all sin is displeasing to him. Sadly, we do not always appreciate the significance of that statement. Thomas Watson did, hence he spoke of God's infinite antipathy against all uncleanness. Jim Packer reminds us that the basic moral norms for mankind are not arbitrary enactments on God's part, but are determined by two unchanging facts. The first fact is the goodness and holiness of the divine creator, which we are called to acknowledge by gratefully seeking to please him. The second fact is the nature of the human creature, whose capacity for freedom and contentment is only ever fulfilled through actively loving and serving God and others. Love for God is evidenced in obedience to his commandments. If you really love me, you will keep my commandments, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Disobedience is sin. It is sin against God because it is to offend his law. The wrath or settled just displeasure of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. To put that in colloquial terms, it means that you cannot do that which is wicked in the eyes of God and expect to get away with it, as they say, scot-free. God is displeased and his displeasure will be shown and shown especially to those who refuse to repent. Solomon touches on this truth when he says in Proverbs 22:14 that the mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Two, the sexual immoral and adult the sexually immoral and adulterous will be judged by God. So declares the author of Hebrews, immediately after he has counselled that marriage is to be held in honour by all and that the marriage bed is to be undefiled. We know that in Old Testament times, God decreed that the adulterer was not to go unpunished. In Leviticus, it is stated that both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Whilst in Deuteronomy, the people of God are reminded that it is their God-given duty to purge the evil from their midst. The sermon against whoredom and adultery in the first book of homilies states that God will not suffer holy wedlock thus to be dishonoured, hated and despised. There then follows an orderly description of what grievous punishments God in times past plagued adultery and how certain worldly princes did also punish it that ye may perceive that whoredom and fornication be sins no less detestable in the sight of God and of all good men than I have hereto uttered. John Flavel helpfully avers that though many other sins lie hid and possibly shall never come to light until that day of manifestation of all things, yet this is a sin that is most usually discovered. Under the law, God appointed an extraordinary way for the discovery of it. Numbers 5.13 And to this day, the providence of God doth very strangely bring it to light, though it be a deed of darkness. Three, 
the sexually immoral and adulterous who remain impenitent will be damned by God. They displease God, they'll be judged by God, they'll be damned by God. Paul proclaims twice in as many verses that such will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Peter informs us that the unrighteous are kept under punishment until the day of judgment. And to John it was revealed that the portion of the sexually immoral is the lake that burns with fire and sulphur, the second death. It comes as no surprise then to note that the homily on whoredom and adultery contains the chilling statement, Great is the damnation that hangeth over the heads of fornicators and adulterers. There you have it. Displeasure, judgment and damnation. Thomas Watson doesn't exaggerate, does he? When he says that God has an infinite antipathy against all uncleanness. Thirdly, what Christians can do by way of example to believers and unbelievers. We shall endeavour to to draw our survey to a close with a consideration of what it is that we can do. First, it should be remembered that as the Apostle Paul wisely counselled, bad company ruins good morals. The individual must be encouraged to ask, to whom do I listen? With whom do I spend time? What do I read? And what do I watch? The individual must also be encouraged to go the next step and ask, and what do I learn from each and every one of these influences on my life? Are they wholesome? Or are they corrupt and destructive influences? There are siren voices in the world which argue, as Jill Tweedy did in the Guardian newspaper, the pundits blame the rising divorce rate on our godlessness, our selfishness, our lustfulness. I blame it on the wrongful expectation of thinking that people can live together as long as they both shall live. I think this expectation goes against our deepest nature, stunting our growth and requiring us to distort our lives to fulfil it. Outside the bonds of Christian marriage, we will, I hope, learn for the first time what love is all about. There are people who argue that extramarital affairs can revive a dull marriage. That's the message of some popular psychology books and women's magazines. It's the message of films such as The English Patient, The Bridges of Madison County and The Prince of Tides. But as Frank Pittman has shown, the message ignores or suppresses the fact that for most people and most marriages, infidelity is dangerous. In an increasingly atomistic and individualistic culture, it should be remembered that bad company can be met by proxy on the internet, as well as on the television and digital video disc. There is much in cyberspace, both verbal and visual, that seduces, deceives and corrupts. 
the responsibility of each individual before God is to choose good and godly company. It is to seek and give advice that coheres with and is controlled and fashioned by the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Secondly, and more specifically, we are under an obligation to guard our eyes and our hearts. We can learn from the example of Job who declared, I had made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze at a virgin? We can learn from the description of false teachers given by Peter in his second letter. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. And we can learn from Eve who allowed herself to be seduced into seeing that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The importance of guarding the heart can be impressed upon us by two considerations. One, by an awareness of the factors that are influential in drawing people into adultery. These are at least three. The inclination of the heart, the attitudes and arguments of evil people, and the example of others. But the importance of guarding the heart can also be impressed upon us by an awareness of the teaching we find in Scripture. For example, Solomon advises his son, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And the Lord Jesus Christ informs his followers, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. Alistair Begg then is right when he says that God is not merely concerned to forbid the act of of adultery, but also to forbid the indulgence of evil affections. When a man looks upon another man's wife with lust, he is an adulterer in God's eyes. A wife must not surrender herself to lascivious thoughts, when she thinks about a married man, for to do so is to be guilty of adultery in the heart. However, there is another dimension to this matter that should not be overlooked. I draw your attention to it by means of this observation made by V.A. Demant in 1963. It is generally believed that a man or woman going off with someone else is entirely a matter of sensuality. They want a new sexual partner. There is, of course, something in this. Everybody sighs for new sexual adventures. And if we don't follow it up, we get a vicarious pleasure at reading the sexual scandals in the papers about the string of new wives and husbands acquired by film stars and the degenerate peerage. But in spite of this covetousness for fresh sexual partners... Infidelity mostly proceeds from resentment and revenge or some other non-sexual reason. Frank Pittman found from a study of his patients who had had affairs that many of them enjoyed a good sex life but came from marriages that were deficient in other aspects of intimacy. There are at least three essential elements to marriage. One, the sexual urge. Two, attraction, and three, friendship. Sometimes elements one and two are strong, but element three is weak. Pittman observed this could be the case and concluded that 
affairs were thus three times more likely to be the pursuit of a buddy than the pursuit of a better orgasm. It is possible that some liaisons are more, if not totally, emotional rather than sexual. That does not mean that such liaisons are automatically acceptable, for as Bonnie Wheel warns, these affairs of the heart can be more treacherous than the purely physical kind. Women particularly are inclined to leave their husbands when they feel a strong emotional bond with another man. Martin Luther's advice was straightforward and succinct. Knowing, as we are taught in Psalm 51, that our request is ever to be, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, Luther advised that when any lust begins to rise in the heart, it is to be taken immediately to God in prayer. Thirdly, the married are to delight in their spouse. Christians are called to be exemplars of this principle both in the church as well as in the world. If the words of scripture are anything to go by, and of course they are, then it can be argued that a particular duty lies upon the husband, for it is said of him, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear and graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. This does not mean that there is not a mutual responsibility that the husband and wife are to have one for another. Clearly there is. For as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, husband and wife are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But what does this submitting and loving entail? No doubt much could be said in answer to the question, but one matter must surely be emphasised. The husband and wife should under God do all they can to fulfil the needs of each other. In so doing, they will do much to prevent the possibility of adultery occurring. Dr. William Harley, in his book, His Needs, Her Needs, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage, asserts that the basic needs of husbands and wives can be listed in two groups of five. Wives, he says, look for affection, conversation, honesty, comfort and commitment to the family. Husbands, on the other hand, look for sex, beauty, recreation, support and admiration. We should not define Harley counsels the effect, the affection for which a wife looks as not including a desire for sexual intimacy, nor should we see the husband's need for sexual intimacy as excluding affection. Nor do we wish to say that Harley's assessment is an infallible guide. We refer to it by way of illustrating that as those created in the image of God, Men and women are equal but different. We're different physically, emotionally and functionally. There is though a complementarity for the male and the female of the human species are that unique entity of creation, namely man-made as and in the image of God. God brought the female into existence by making the male incomplete. But the male was made complete again when that which was taken from him was given back to him. Similarly, the female was formed apart from the male from whom she was taken, but in being given to the male, she became what she was created to be. We are to be content with what we have. Fourthly, 
we are to fear God. It is as Proverbs 16 verse 6 says, by the fear of the Lord that one turns away from evil. Certainly that was what kept Joseph on the straight and narrow. The seductions of Potiphar's wife had no hold on him for as a man who feared God, he was appalled at the idea of doing a great wickedness and sinning against God. Bernard calls holy fear the doorkeeper of the soul. And Flavel urges that we walk in the fear of God all the day long. Know that his omniscient eye is always upon you. He sees what you think as well as what you do. He sees what you do in public as well as what you do in secret. Such fear will teach us both to flee immorality and to put a restraint upon our appetites. Fifthly, we are to delight in God's law. How else can a young man keep his way pure except by guarding it according to God's law? Psalm 119. John Bradford, one time chaplain to Edward VI, testified, and he speaks of the seventh word inscribed by God on two tablets of stone in this way. Full well I see that it is thou which by this commandment not only refrainest me, but also keepest my wife from impurity, which else we might both commit. Thou gavest this command to this end, that I might know my sin and my sinful nature, and so thereby be driven to thy crucified Christ, for whose sake I ask mercy. And also that thy good spirit may be given unto me to purify me and work so in me and with me that I might truly know, heartily love and faithfully obey this thy holy precept inwardly and outwardly now and forever. Amen. It is those within whom the spirit of God resides who know the prohibitory you shall not transformed into the promissory you shall not commit adultery may God grant that each of us may know the joy of being kept from the heinous sin of adultery may God use us to prevent others from falling into it and may God make us those who impart to those who have fallen into this sin the knowledge of where forgiveness and power to make good what is wrong may be found. Thank you very much indeed, Mr. Curry. We're going to follow the pattern of the previous talks by having a short break uh, to give an opportunity for those who wish to ask questions to do so. So just have a couple of minutes when we think in our minds what we might want to ask. Right. I detect from that that you've had at least time to think about questions. George says he's content to answer questions. Um, I've been reprimanded by the director of the Christian Institute for saying what I said last week, which was that I 
didn't like questions very much, and I remain in that position, but I'm content to allow them if you want to ask them. I just simply would like us to ask questions to the point and to the point of the content of what's been said tonight. Again, I was reprimanded last week by Miss Towns, for which I repent. Um, if you do ask a question, you need to speak it into the microphone, and I need to understand the question and repeat it so you all hear. So if you're going to ask a question, can it be simple and clear for my benefit as well as for everybody else's? <laughs> Anyone like to venture into the waters first, please? Right, just, if you just, just speak away there, that's fine. The microphone is, is in the right position, Gwyneth. Um, what happens when you get somebody, say, who is of a religion where they've taken more than one wife and there's children and then they um, convert to Christianity? Do they keep the first marriage and that family... Uh, how, how do they stand? The question is, what happens if uh, you are dealing with a religion where it permits more than one wife and there's a conversion and someone becomes Christian, what do they do with the other wives? Is that, is that <laughs> I'm sure it was asked better than that, but that's the gist of the question, I think. Mr. Curry. I, I really am not sure that I can answer this question in any way near an adequate way. It's a very, it's a pressing question in some African countries, for example, um, where there have been um, there has been a history of polygamy. The way I understand that it's being tackled there is that obviously the people who are Christian are taught that um, people who've converted to, to Christianity to, to Christ are taught that um, polygamy is wrong, monogamy is right. There's a real difficulty of how you actually sort those uh, problems out, though, because you can have children by more than one woman who have to be provided for, cared for, nurtured and loved, uh, and that poses a difficulty. I think you <laughs> there's always a hard... Uh, uh, the principle is taught that monogamy is right, polygamy is wrong. You've got to work out how you actually apply that sensitively and wisely in that situation. Uh, and that will take time for teaching and for preparing the um, persons concerned for... Um, living in, the right, in a way that is going to, from that day on, be honouring to God. I've not really answered the question, but it's the best as I can do, I think. Anybody else? Come on, somebody else got a bit answer to that. <laughs> is this a further question? Different question. Different question. Yeah. Question over here. Um, are we to call on all people to repent and believe the gospel, uh, the elect and non-elect? So, well, the answer to that question is quite simply yes. Did you hear the question? Oh, sorry. <laughs> are we to call on all people? Well, the answer is clearly yes. The gospel is to be offered to all people. You and I don't know who the elect are. 
We do not know who they are at all. It could be the vile, miserable sinner living in the house next door to you, uh, who you know, has, has lived a most outrageous life, been in and out of prison, all the rest, etc., you can think of. We have no idea who God's chosen ones are. We only see the evidence of the work of his spirit. And his spirit will work as men and women share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with others. We must preach Christ crucified. And we must preach him and him alone. And evangelicals aren't very good at doing that today. In many of our churches, we preach our music rather than our gospel. But that's another story. It certainly is. <laughs> One which I could talk about at great length, but won't. <laughs> Question over here, please. Uh, well, it's more of a comment, really. I just want to endorse what George said, because coming out of a dodgy background that I came out of, out of um, not good background in certain ways, when you do find somebody that tells you about Christ and then you want to follow Christ, it's an amazing release from all that. And people in our world are still carrying it around. And it isn't fun. It, it's damaging. It hurts. And you still live with it, even though you know you're forgiven. So... It is, we just have to, as George said, we don't know who these people are. But when God gets hold of you and releases you, it's just fantastic. And, it, uh, and, and that's the only person that can actually get you out of the mire. Thank you. I'm sure you've all heard that. Do you want to say anything else, George? Well, I think it's very important we do realise the damage that is done by wrong relationships. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, so I can tell you it now because my mother's dead and buried, died four years ago. My mother was in an adulterous relationship with my father back in the 1940s. She used to work uh, for the American Ambulance Service. What on earth the American Ambulance Service are doing posted up here, I don't know. But they were posted up here and she entered into an adulterous relationship with my father who'd been married for about 25 years uh, to somebody else beforehand. There were no children from that marriage as far as we know. Uh, we don't know who else he'd um, lived around with and or slept around with and there had been people that I've discovered he had slept around with. Now, I know from my own personal experience, my own family, the pain and agony that was uh, experienced by... I mean, I was the one who discovered all this, and I discovered it by looking at my birth certificates <laughs> when my birth certificates filled in, uh, let the cat out of the bag. Uh, and being a person who wanted to be a detective, I thought, hello, there's something stated here which isn't quite right. But it was actually right, because my mother covered over what she'd done by changing her name by Depot. So she changed her name to Curry so she could live with my father in the delights of um, Scott's Gap, etc., just uh, north of here. I mean, interestingly, my father, when it was found out what he'd done, he lost his job. That wouldn't happen today, 50 years later. Uh, but there, there's no question about it. I mean, my mother, the whole of my life, was mentally ill, and I, or, or emotionally ill, depending on which way you like to look at it. And I cannot, for the life of me, uh, say that part of her lifestyle wasn't something that affected her life and her mental health and emotional health in particular. Because she could never, ever, to her children, when I discovered this and talked to her about it, she could never, ever own up to it. Very sad. She had the gospel with her. She professed to be a Christian. But, uh, I hope and pray she found forgiveness. But I think we have to recognise that we can easily get ourselves into sexually compromised positions, uh, that the sex urge is so strong in each and every one of us, and we're foolish to think otherwise. There really is a desire in each and every one of us, for sexual intimacy with another, 
Not all of us have the gift of continency. And those who don't will find themselves tempted to be in relationships they shouldn't be in. And if we're in a relationship that's not going quite right for one reason or another, because we, we've got things out of kilter. Some people enter into relationships, don't they? Because they want to... It's the sex. It's, it's, the, it's the raw sex drive that's driving the relationship. Sometimes it's the, it's the attractiveness of the, of the girl or, or the, the boy that uh, they're in a relationship with, and they neglect the friendship. You know, I mean, let's face it, we're all going to grow old and our libido's going to die down. And the reality is... You know, we're going to be old doddery people, as Ecclesiastes puts it, without the teeth and all the rest, etc. But we're to love each other and be buddies and friends with each other. 